Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, how are you, my friend? Oh, it's Saturday, so you got to deal with my Saturday hair. I have a hat on because it's Saturday for me too. So I'm not even I'm not even attempting any any hair legitimacy or any kind of hair hair legitimacy. No Facebook live for us because we're just we're not ready for that. This wonder morning. wonder if I could get a research grant to, you know, study hair legitimacy and there're probably oh, yeah. some interesting correlations between hair quality um and uh, you know, political performance, social influence. Yeah, there's something. There's got to be. I mean, there's all these studies on height, right? Like CEOs and all that stuff. And oh yeah, and yeah. So yeah, they're like that. Mm. People are more effect, like like more likely to hire like tall CEOs or something like that. And we're always we're always kind of you know like strangely fascinated when it turns out that we're still animals. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, and that that all of these things that kind of aren't relevant to a rational worldview actually still exist. Well, they, Nietzsche's right, though. Aristotle's wrong. We're not rational animals. We're rationalizing animals. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're, that, you're saying that that that's already been taken. I can't claim credit for that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just saying that's. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Nietzsche was into really realizing how animal we are. By the way, can I tell you how many COVID cases we had in this country yesterday? How many? One hundred eighty-one thousand one hundred ninety-four. We're up seventy-six percent over fourteen days. We had like fourteen hundred deaths. We're up forty thirty-four percent deaths and sixty-eight thousand hospitalizations. So we're up forty-one percent. This country's crazy. It, uh, it's amazing. It, 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 I mean, you kind of. What do you respond to that? Right. The the thing is, it seems in most other countries, although I can't say like every country is struggling with its own with its own situation. I mean, in Canada, you know, because Canadian Thanksgiving happens in October, um, you know, there was a pretty big uptick across the country after Thanksgiving because just the, you know, the, the, the deep, the deep ritual of family getting together to, to celebrate. Um, but, you know, other than that, there is a pretty broad consensus, you know, certainly here in, in the UK, despite all of the political back and forth and stuff that, Look, this is real. Um, you know, vaccine is coming. That's great. In the meantime, there are these simple things that we need to do to, you know, contain as best we can. And that the that the you know that those simple things have become so difficult um, in the United States to kind of just get agreement on. And, and yeah, I mean, it's it's out of control. I mean, it, it's it's. I mean, we are. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like Canada's cases are up, but when you compare like Canada's cases. Oh, they're up 55%. They had 4,741 cases yesterday compared to ours, 180. And like, we're hitting new highs every day. Like, if you look at like the, the, the graph, it's like every single day, basically for the past week, we're hitting new highs. And it kind of, you know, I know we're going to get into this once, you know, maybe 20 minutes from now, we, we introduced the topic for our podcast today. <laughs> but uh, exactly, you know, but it relates to something that I know we're going to talk a bit about, which is, you know, there is this kind of, fundamental contradiction at the heart of democracy which is that in theory you know whether you're in power or out of power um you're interested in promoting the general welfare 
right? We've got different views of how best to do that. But, you know, that contest of ideas is productive and ultimately leads to, you know, good policy and good ideas to promote the general welfare. And, you know, this year in the U.S., I think it's just been such a stark example of how that's not really the game we're playing, right? The game is to win. And and often the best play is for things to go to hell <laughs> and then blame somebody for it and uh, and get back into power that way. Um, and it was you know really quite stark and astonishing to to see, you know, really, I think it was the politicization of the fact that it was an urban phenomenon first. And, you know, uh, big cities tend to be democratic hubs. And so you could make this really association of like, look where the problem is, is where you have these people in power and they are the problem when, you know, the, the, and, and so that to me is the stark difference in, 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 in Canada, for example, where, you know, there's just still a kind of overriding sense that no, this is clearly in the general interest. We've all got to tote, we've all got to play by the, like sing by the song sheet um, because the consequences of not doing so are, are so bad and so avoidable that how could we possibly possibly get away with that? But it's a real stark example of just how, I don't know. I mean, is democracy an anachronism now? Like all of the fund- fundamental assumptions of it. <laughs> so I, it's really interesting. That's just the politicization of the whole thing. I, I have a friend who's a minister in Pennsylvania, in central Pennsylvania. And I asked him, how's his, what's his congregation doing in COVID? And he's like, oh, we're, we're indoors. He's a Republican kind of conservative guy. He's like, we're worshiping indoors, no mask, no social uh, distancing. And I said, really? He said, yeah, well, because I think if you're in a conservative church, that's what you have to do. Otherwise, they think you're giving into Biden and the virus and the mask. And I'm thinking, wow, it's that explicit. I mean, that, that it was not just a sort of a kind of guttural thing. Uh, you know, it, it's not just a guttural kind of feeling. It's articulated this way. Like, it's explicit. I, I, I was shocked how explicitly he could identify why they're not t- doing what normal people think are best practices. And it was it was a it was a political act. I mean, I guess, you know, and that's. You know, a lot of and a lot of people have kind of commented on this and written on this. I think of um, I don't know if you've ever read Zygmunt Bowman. No, he uh, this uh, really just fascinating social theorist who passed away recently. I think um, he wrote a series of books. The one that comes to mind right now is Liquid Modernity. Uh, so basically, about kind of the the liquefaction of um, so much stability that that used to be sort of taken for granted, like norms and. And, and, and stuff like that. Um, but one of the things that he talked about is how dangerous it is when politics becomes um, so personalized that, that your political views become kind of an integral part of your self-identity. Yeah, your ideas do the identity work. Yeah. And, and so, therefore, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a betrayal to your own self-identity and all of the people, you know, kind of upon whom you rely for, for community to uh, be on the wrong side of any political argument. And you think about like, that's insane. Like why, why, why do I have to sort of conform with, you know, everything that uh, my group agrees with in order to stay a member of that group? I mean, it's kind of, I don't know. It's 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 such a clear example of how far we've gone down that road of 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 making everything so personal. Yeah, no, it, it, it is. It's again, this is like the essence of American life right now. I mean, this is this is what I live every day. By the way, we should mention that we had a great base camp meeting um, uh, that was last that was a week ago, Saturday. Oh my god, it's been a week already. Yeah, that was great. 
I mean, I had that, a great group. I, did my you? small group was wonderful. Yeah. And I, uh, and the me. question we gathered was, um, we gathered around, right? Was, what do I need? And, what do I need? Yeah. Where did you guys take it? Uh, some people like talk, some people were more personal. I think I was on the more personal end. Some people were a lot on the self awareness end. There were people that like I talking about the kind of voices they need in their life to, to be aware and that kind of thing. Um, I, you know, so there was a combination of these kind of, of the kind of perception versus the personal. Cause for me, it was very much about human connection and just realizing in, in the pandemic as an extrovert who's spending, I, I'm, I spent, I mean, I spend all, basically all my time alone these days. Like, you know, um, so unless I'm doing something like this or on a zoom call or something, otherwise I'm by and large alone, you know, and that's a kind of weird kind of thing. And, and just talking about the, needs for human connection. And that's why Basecamp has been a good thing that it, it, it's a meta need just because I've developed some friendships with people, you know, like, I mean, I talk to a retired guy in Canada, like, like every other day because of Basecamp, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we check in and uh, he kind of chides me about my country falling apart. And <laughs> 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 But, you know, but, I mean, so I, I thought it was a great gathering and I just, you know, I continue to just, I'm intrigued by the kind of people that are, are convened in the group. And, 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 and I mean, and it's interesting too, cause right. It's getting, it's getting far beyond you, right? There's a lot, there's tons of people, the majority of people involved now, you, you probably don't even know. I have no idea who these people are, but it's great. I mean, that's, that's what makes it more, more uh, exciting for me, you know, getting into these breakout groups with people and you wonder how did you find your way here? Um, but the, the shared, the space, even though it's virtual has become real enough that, um, you know, sort of first timers arrive and, and the space kind of helps them find, oh, this is what we're meant to do here. We're meant to begin impactful, meaningful conversations that we feel are missing um, around this shared question. And um, and so I think we're getting really, really good at creating that space and helping people to kind of get into that that space and into the mindset to have those conversations. And and I, I think it's all connected, right? Like we're talking about what's happening politically and, and the personalization of politics. And, you know, we, we talk about all of us kind of being in our own echo chambers because of, um, you know, how technology divides us and the media environment and, and you know, our social and economic circumstance or how educated we are in the school of, you know, degrees or the school of life. I mean, it's that there are these chasms yeah. Between us. And, and, and I start to feel like, you know, echo chamber is, is, is the wrong term for it because, you know, you could be in some, some, what feels like a, like a very narrow subreddit <laughs> on Reddit, like some, some thread of some conversation. And there's still tens of thousands of people who are surrounding you there, affirming you that, yeah, this is the way to look at things. Like it's not an echo chamber anymore. It's like a, I don't know what, what the other term for it, but it's, it's not contained in the way that term suggests we're, we're going somewhere together as, as a tribe, as a, as a sub culture. And, and so I think we do need, you know, just to create some, some global gathering spaces where it's possible to get together differently with other people who, you know, who, who I have not met because the algorithm has said that we are going to agree and reinforce one another's feelings. It, we're coming together with it through a different kind of serendipity that, that allows us to leave there with just a kind of a reminder that, oh, reality is much bigger than what's real for me. And, and that feels like, you know, maybe like the fundamental assumption that we've forgotten 
upon which, you know, things like democracy depend. Yeah. 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 I think that's absolutely right. Which brings us kind of to our question that you we set, you set the question for this one. I love you. I love your question. So why don't I let you? Yeah. Which, you know, which as, as for those who are listening, we're kind of, this is kind of what we're doing with the podcast for the foreseeable future. We're going to try to ask questions that, that have both a timely and timeless nature, right? So questions that we, as we ask them, they're, they're contextually timely, but also they, they, they might reveal some timeless truths or timeless insights that, that are really worth pondering. And so the question was, you know, does democracy have a shelf life? Um, what's what, you know, as we think about um, democracy, and I remember it's funny because as I think about this question, I remember one of our first podcasts we ever did, we're, you were talking about the Devos crowd and how the Davos crowd, you mean the Davos crowd, right? The Davos kind of crowd that, that kind of international business elite kind of gathering and how they're sort of, there was the sense that democracy was kind of passe and they're looking admirably at things like China was doing right economically. And, 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 and that, that there's this kind of um, skepticism about the functionality of democracy of, of, of democratic economies versus kind of China's autocratic economy, which is, leading to all this growth. So, I mean, I just remember us talking about that. Like, that's got to be, I don't know how long, a year, over a year ago or something. But so, th- so this question is just something that I is on my mind w- with, you know, the, the United States has just, has just gone through an election cycle, which now is still, hmm. I mean, it, it's a strange thing because it's all the media has called the election for Biden and yet Trump is still kind of fighting it. And, and depending on your news sources and stuff, I mean, it looks it it looks as though these court battles are kind of futile and that they're not going to actually amount to anything. But he can still wage them. I mean, and so it, you know, and we have a weird election system where there's not a federal election system; it's 50 individual elections, and you have to wait for each state to certify and all this. It's a very kind of interesting and curious and weird system. But I wonder is, is what's the future of Western liberal? democracy and does it is it have a shelf life does it have an expiration date and are things like pandemics racial unrest uh, other factors really contributing to this to this question or, or, or raising or giving the occasion for raising the question like is are we are, are we at the are we watching the t- deterioration of this kind of way of life well um so giant question right let's uh there's a billion ways to take it maybe let's let's take the easy one first um which I'm sure is going to be, you know, part of what so many pundits and talking heads uh, w- will reference right now on a question of like, you know, so how is democracy doing? Like as a, as a way of society figuring out how to organize itself and um, figure out who to follow and who's got power. Like how, how good is the system doing? And I guess you could say, well, you know, some would argue the last U.S. election is an example of, you know, like all sorts of warts, but in the fundamental task, it seems to do its job, um, which is, you know, here's a person who was put in charge. Um, and uh, after four years, the people had a choice. Do we want to renew this person's job or do we want to fire them? Um, and they decided to fire him. So, you know, the country's very split on whether that was the right decision or not, but a majority decided to fire the guy. And I mean, there's still a very strong assumption, it seems, um, in, in kind of, you know, American institutions and, and talking heads and stuff that ultimately he is going to leave the White House. He's not going to stage a coup. And assuming that that does end up happening, that Biden does become president. I mean, it's still, you know, that's kind of fundamentally what democracy kind of thumps its chest about. And so like, this is pretty incredible, right? Like, look at all the guns. Um, look at all the bombs. 
that uh, you know this government controls and the person who runs this government has power over and that the people can just sort of mark an X or like tap a screen on mass. And that person has to give it all up and let somebody else do the job. You know, that that's democracy working, I guess, would be the first the first thing that someone might say to to that. So it's curious. Well, I think you're I I think I would. Yeah, you're right. That's the thing that can't happen in China. Right. Right. Exactly. Or or in or in Russia. Say you know like where Putin kind of just you know stays until he decides he wants to, he doesn't want to go right like uh, you know until he wants to go uh, yeah it was interesting too in this election too because it's interesting to figure out what voters said right because that that's the other thing right if you're thinking about a democracy like what do elections tell you because interestingly the polling was way off I mean like at least at the state level the national polls might turn out to be mildly decent but like there were polls that were saying biden was going to win wisconsin by like 17 points he didn't he won it like by three points or four points you know it, it, i mean these are that's this is really wild that that these things these instruments are, are this ineffective but but i think what was said right because most people if if you're a republican in this country and if you're if you get over the emotion of losing the presidency republicans did pretty well in the election I mean, they're probably going to keep the Senate and no Republican House member that was up for reelection lost. And several Republicans actually beat Democrats. So the Democratic majority, which still exists in the House, shrunk. So interestingly, you got rid of the 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 head of the Republican Party and Donald Trump, but then actually Republicans picked up seats in the legislature. So so what does that say? I mean, this is kind of like, I mean, I guess it says there are at least a, a large group of people that split their ticket that voted against Trump and then voted for Trumpian kind of politicians, <laughs> which is, which is it's, it's an interesting kind of phenomenon where what's, what's in the mood of the voter? Like what, what can you, what, what do you take away from elections? If elections are, are, are referendums or if they are ways that we, in which people are expressing, you know, this is the public voice this is the voice of the people. What is, it seems like the voice is gargled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, and maybe that's part of the, mm, you know, one of the challenges of it is that, um, there, there's so many steps between my vote and the outcome of the election that along the way, there's there's plenty of room for anyone to kind of interpret it how they want. So, yeah, so the, the will of the voter is very unclear. That's, I think, yeah, that's that's true. And especially this election, although, you know, and, and I don't know, like I haven't, you know, I haven't dug into the the data of how people exactly voted and form my own view of what does it mean. I, I suspect, you know, one broad takeaway for people will be that um, it was really a referendum on his handling of the coronavirus. And, um, and we thought he did a really shitty job of that, but we're not going to blame, you know, our Republican senators or, or, or Congress people for that, because actually we don't think that they were on the wrong side. We think that it was the president who, who fumbled the ball. Like that would be one explanation that would put the, put the pieces together. And I guess it kind of, you know, so to your question, like, you know, how is democracy doing? I think, and and what's the lifespan of democracy? There is this, what we're really talking about is the big question of accountability, right? So one of the ideas is that it's a system to hold the people with power to account. And, you know, I mean, in some ways, maybe that Trump wasn't reelected was almost like, like a data point that goes against the, the broader, trend or the broader argument that seems to suggest like actually it's doing a really piss poor job of holding people to account 
you know, you've got, if you think of the global financial crisis, did anybody go to jail for that? Right. If you think of the war in Iraq, did anybody go to jail for that? They're all, do we think of like, you know, the coronavirus and all these tens of thousands of people who have died unnecessarily, did anybody get like all of these giant corporations that can funnel, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever into lobbying to affecting what, um, you know, what the policies that they're governed by are and avoid paying taxes. I mean, this is a really shitty system for holding anybody to account. And, you know, there's a lot of public opinion research out there that suggests like a pretty small uh, group of people actually believe that, you know, people in power are held to account. And if you don't believe that, then, you know, are you going to turn out and vote? So I think one of the you know, one of the maybe accomplishments of of Donald Trump is all these people who felt like, you know, politics is just this game that actually doesn't accomplish anything for me, came back and re-engaged and, and decided that th- somehow this person and what he's saying and what I believe he's going to do is going to affect me. What's interesting, though, I think, is that the balkanization kind of erodes democracy, right? When people can't listen to the other side and you're just, you, you get your information from like one source and, and you know, the, the voter becomes less and less critically informed and becomes a lot, you know, like we're, we're, we're just watching one news source or whatever. And, and the opposition watches another news source. And what's interesting is Trump. Yeah, like, was, I can, I can tell listening to you for like 10 seconds, you are a hardcore socialist. Exactly. I'm just <laughs> this is a socialist right now. That's what, that that's what Republicans call Democrats socialist. And, Democrats think call you know Republicans these right wing gut religious gun toters and all this stuff. But what happens, I think, is that people didn't like Trump as a polarizing figure, right? That was one of the reasons I think a lot of people, even Republicans that voted against him, like he's so polarizing. And yet we consistently reward polarizing figures. So so we don't we don't because like, the system's not working, right? Yeah. yeah and, so, and so I'm looking for the outsider candidate who's gonna make it work. And that was his message, right? And that's what Hillary Clinton's message was not. She was a creature of the system. But So we don't reward, though. Our, our elections tend to not reward constructive collaborators that can compromise and build consensus. Our elections tend to reward polarizing figures. So, so again, you look at, you look at our, this most recent election. Yeah, we got rid of a polarizing figure at the top, but, a lo- but, but reelected a lot of polarizing figures in the legislature who are who are not compromisers, who are not, we can't even get, we can't even get a Corona, another Corona relief um, package passed in this country. And that's something everybody thinks we need, right? If you ask your average American, of course we need, we need help with this, right? But we can't, um, you know, we, we, we can't, we, 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 we reward people that continue to balkanize the system. So this is, you know, and this is, we've talked in the past about kind of how, you know, parliamentary democracy and, and American democracy kind of, Differ. Like you've got the split executive, right? In 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 a parliament like here in the UK, the prime minister is also part of Congress, essentially. Um, and if you've got a majority, then you just basically you've got the reins of power and, and you do what you want to do for four or five or eight years. And then people can kind of clearly evaluate, okay, that's when you're in charge. How do things look? And so you kind of take turns doing exactly what you want to do and evaluating the consequence. Uh, in the U.S. system, it seems like there's and and the coronavirus, you know, aid package is a classic example. Like, if let let's say Biden gets a uh, you know actually comes into office, assuming he will, like, what's the incentive if Mitch McConnell is the head of the Senate, right, to to help pass the legislation to do some massive like three trillion dollar 
stimulus package that that's then going to you know basically give Biden a blank check to say let's we're going to rebuild America and and take credit for it so that in 4 years and people are like wow you know how has Biden do on the job and they say well he's actually done a lot we've got new roads we've got new highways we've got this new light rail system that's connecting states or whatever it might be right 3 trillion dollars is a lot of stimulus and so like well no I don't want to do that I don't want to hand a win I don't want to demonstrate to the people that with this person in charge, life gets better. <laughs> I want people to think that with this person in charge, life gets worse. So, you know, if you think about it just as a system, that seems that seems a bit messed up, right? Because basically what, what you end up having happen is, you know, I'm not a loyal opposition. I am I am a subversive opposition. And and each time real power changes hands, we're going to spend you know the first few years of that undoing what the other person tried to do, so that we're never really going to you know achieve some long term progress on anything. And you you think of you know go back in time some of the long term plays Obama does at the end of his presidency. So you know I'm going to start to normalize relations with Cuba. And you know, one of the first things Trump does in office is like the hell with that. We're not going down that road. Right? We're going to go the other way. Uh, you know, just one of a billion examples, you know, climate change, you know, giant example. So I guess that kind of gets into why we're opening like this. You, you open this can of worms and all the worms squirrel up. But this is another thing that you kind of wonder, like, geez, we've got all of these generational challenges that we're facing, you know, uh, you know, climate change, nature, um, this whole technological transformation AI and 5G and all of these different technologies, you know, it's going to be some kind of like energy revolutions underway. You know, it seems like all of the big things that need to be fixed are generational fixes. So how are we even begin to make progress on that when, you know, at best we can plan sort of a three to four year horizon. And not only that, but every time, you know, somebody else takes the reins, we go back two years. <laughs> Right, and this in 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 the United States, how this works very concretely, I think, is that basically the legislature is completely ineffective now, right? And so what happens is you wind up doing like what both Obama and Trump do. You wind up governing by executive orders, right? And so, but these things are not; they don't have the same kind of force as legislation. So the executive next executive can come in and just undo them and and undo even more is what you're saying, right? So it's even even worse. I mean, we're just going to ping pong back and forth, and no one's going to go up. So like, so I think the, the way, if you look at our constitution, right, the, where the action is, is the legislature, right? Like where, I mean, you know, the, the founders create this document where, where, where the action seems to be in the house and the Senate, but the way it plays out now, the action is in the executive branch and the courts, right? The legislature is, it's largely ineffective. I mean, you know, unless again, you get super majorities, like Obama, his first two years had a significant majority in the house and Senate and got through Obamacare. And then the next six years, how much did he accomplish? Very little, because as soon as the Republicans got in, there was, and again, like he did a lot of stuff just via executive fiat that, can, that then gets just rolled back in the next election. Right. Well, and, you know, Obamacare, another example of, so you, you, you put that in place and that's, you know, you, you've got a few years to build that up and somebody else comes to power and we spend those few years building it down again. So we've, we've managed to make some gains, but the gains are like the remaining gains after four years of trying to dismantle that uh, that progress. So again, and th- and then then a global pandemic happens, and you think like, gee, you know, our healthcare system really struggles to respond 
to a kind of like mass public healthcare event where it would it would really help the public welfare if everybody could just afford to go to the hospital, get checked out and didn't worry about those things because there's these community consequences of me not having the uh, healthcare resources to check out. Am I okay? You know, am I all right? And, and so you recognize, well, like the, the individualization of access to healthcare um, when something like a global pandemic comes around really puts us behind the eight ball, you know, and that's also, you know, I don't want to give Trump any credit for their handling of the, of, of the pandemic, but it was like part of what made it harder in the U S versus say, you know, here in the UK where, you know, the national health service uh, is such a, such a cultural institution that when, when any politician says like, okay, that the health service is in crisis because of all these cases without even kind of thinking their way through it, people are like, Oh, that's bad. So what do you want us to do? Um, and you don't have that kind of relationship with with healthcare and with the system that supplies it. Or even in Canada, what, uh, uh, somebody from Basecamp, a Canadian friend, has told me. I found this really interesting because we had these. There was, a, for instance, this sheriff in Florida somewhere where actually made a rule where no masks allowed in my sheriff's office. <laughs> so that was an opposite mask mandate. It was, and this friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours from the Basecamp community, was telling me. That wouldn't happen in Canada because in each province, the public health officials have so much authority that they could come in and just overturn that kind of by fiat, um, you know, if, if some crazy sheriff in Canada tried to do that. But we don't have those kind of thing, officials here. I and mean, we don't have any mechanism like that. And the other thing that I think in a pandemic that makes our system, again, uniquely unsuited to deal with this is if Joe Biden becomes president, right? When Joe Biden becomes president, he can't institute a national mask mandate. Like that would get struck down in our courts immediately. Like states' rights. Like they, I mean, you would, and you have in our, in our, and you could say, is this democratic? Is it healthy? Or is it, is it, is it a dysfunctional form of democracy? You know, you have my friends in Arizona, you know, you have the mayor of Phoenix, who's a Democrat, who is trying to get a mask mandate in her city because it's, it's the fifth large state in America. And like, look, we need masks to, and the, the Republican governor is fighting her in court so she can't have a, a mask mandate in her own city. So so you want – I mean these are the things where I'm just like looking at the, the way our federalist system works where all these states have all these rights, all these localities within the states have the, all these rights. It just – when you, when you it, and maybe it's functional on, on some levels but – or it, it culturally at least it, it makes a big diverse democracy like ours livable because you don't have to live the same way in Mississippi as you do in California. But when you have national problems like a pandemic, it just seems like we're completely – even again if we had a capable president, the system would mitigate effective action. There's so much um, – there's just so much learning to to take away from you know i, I mean that the us right now is just a great sort of you know case study upon which to launch all sort of deep thinking about democracy right and 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 system of government and you know and the fact that you know there was this election this year and this pandemic just makes it there are going to be so many books and theses you know <laughs> written over the next few years about about um about all of this and you know listening to you talk about you know the mask mandate I guess what what feels so glaringly missing is is kind of an embodiment of the general welfare and any reality to that phrase, which, you know, it seems that if you think of how the debate unfolded, you know, in Joe Biden, he talked about science and and kind of appealing to, to science. That's how we'll decide to 
do the universal stuff if science tells us. And I feel like, you know, even, even that appeal sort of hints at there is something missing that, that we couldn't, because you'd feel like that we would have a closer relationship to the general welfare. And that would be more influential than to saying we should appeal to science, which for most people is like very abstract. Like what? That is some kind of conceptual thing. There's all sorts of power relationships. When you tell me science says I have to do this, that, you know, I mean, there's a lot of history of bad science, you know, eugenics. You know, we call it, we got this agenda. We're going to cloak it in these words called science. Like, oh, okay, I guess we should do that. So, so that there's a society that has deep suspicions about just doing something because science says, you know, there, there, that might be, you know, good, healthy, critical thinking reaction, but that there's a society where we can't talk about the general welfare. I mean, you, you know, you, you open this by saying like, do you know how many cases there were? And, and that, that number doesn't, doesn't affect people. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, that's what's amazing. I, there's no sense uh, I have in this country that there's really any more urgency, or there's really any new kind of initiative or, or an energy created by these numbers. And these numbers are going up exponent, like every day. Like you know, a couple weeks ago, we hit seventy five thousand cases, and I was like, "Wow, that's the highest we've had since July." And now this is more than doubling. Like, I mean, this is, this is, I mean, we are, we are, and, and even if you adjust for size, like per capita, like what is it, what do they say? What do you times things in Canada um, to get scale of the US? Like times 10. It's like times 10 or something, right? Like, yeah. Because Canada's so about 36 million people at the moment. Yeah. So like, let's say they had 4,000 cases. Let's say it's per capita 40,000 cases. We have four and a half times that here. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and, and there's not any, like, and, my friends in Canada are telling me that Canadians are freaking out over 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 their increase and 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 worried and thinking about lockdown and all this stuff. And we here are like at least half the country, at least half the country is not for any measures like that. Like I mean, they are just completely indifferent to any kind of lockdown measures again. So I guess you know where what's becoming clear in my head is so you know in your in your system of government. So if I'm concerned about like, where is the general welfare represented? I guess the answer is supposed to be in the presidency, in the office of the presidency as the head of state, you know, in the way that, you know, here in this country, uh, the queen or the crown, you know, constitutionally, like, what do they do? They have no real power, but they can always speak on behalf of the whole because they are above the party politics. And there's an opportunity in in your kind of in your system of government. You know, you got the House. It's all very politicized. The Senate's all politicized. You know, the Senate represents kind of the states and the House represents the population bases. And the presidency could be um the fact that it's an electoral college and not a direct popular vote kind of confuses it. But but the rhetoric, I think, classically has always kind of been that, you know, now that I've been elected, time for national healing, I'm going to be the president for, um, you know, for Democrats and for Republicans. I mean, the kind of stuff that, you know, Biden said in his victory speech, which used to be just total cliche and now actually sounds novel. <laughs> But I think I think you know we'll never know that world how how different might it have been if the the presidency and forget that Trump was president just the presidency in 2020 had been kind of a voice of national unity around this pandemic and said like here's here's how we need to approach it you know here's how we as a country are doing and 
and and made it something that made it permissible to to really rally around um, uh, a, a problem in a way that was unifying and not divisive by party. I mean, we'll never know, but that that's that's the only institution you've got that I think can. Yeah, and that is I mean the hard thing, the challenge, it's interesting. I'm working on this film project with a guy right now named David Shields, and I'm just kind of helping him do some intellectual history work for this film about basically like the post-truth world. He's a really interesting writer and filmmaker. And we were talking about and we've been working on this for a couple hours a day. It's been one of the most exciting intellectual projects I've done in a while. And we were talking about this. I'm starting to feel kind of jealous here. I know. I'm going to have, I should bring you into one of our conversations because you would love this. I mean, Are we you would, still going to be friends? After yeah, exactly. We're not, I'm not breaking up with you. I'm just, I, I, it's a polyamorous relationship. Uh, hmm. uh, but we were talking about something really interesting that, that you look at like perspectively. How is it that I'm not heard about him before? So, so we were talking about this move where postmodernism and perspectivalism kind of, this starts as an ethical kind of thing, right? In some ways, like there's power games and we all want to acknowledge our perspectives because there's, you know, people of color have one perspective or feminists or, or Jews or LGBT folks or all these things. And so actually you're, you're getting, you're, you're bringing in some relativism to try to make for a more inclusive conversation. Well, then what's happened is this perspectivalism has been weaponized by the American right, right? I mean, where you have Kelly and Conway, the, well, they're alternative facts. And Trump does the same kind of thing. And Steve Bannon and all the – and some of these people like Steve Bannon is pretty – I think he's pretty smart. And like, And so we're trying to figure out how did this – and what does the left do? The irony of the left is the left is crying for old school objectivity now. Like, oh my gosh, we've got to get facts back. we got to – and it's sort of like it's hard to let these – put these horses back in the barn when – and I, again, these things – ideas often have consequences we don't foresee. Like like Gutenberg, right, the guy who, who invented the printing press, was a really pious Catholic. He would not have wanted – his invention to undermine the Catholic church, but that's what it did. Right. Because without the printing press, you know, there were a lot of like John Huss was a pretty famous kind of reformer a century before Luther who died, burned at the stake because he didn't have a printing press. Hmm. Um, so like, so sometimes you have these things that undermine your own commitments. And I wonder how this kind of, a kind of postmodern perspectivalism, which is meant to be inclusive and, and, and was meant to sort of be enfranchising has now been weaponized, right? And, and and where I think it hurts the democracy is you just, part of the common welfare idea, we don't have any common language, we don't have any common facts, we don't have any common news sources. We don't have, and so that kind of makes for this sort of, like what you were saying, it's just about winning, right? There, there's not, the whole political process becomes about, I won, you lost. And there's not this sense of, okay, the debate is not about, okay, we're going to, we're adversaries in a debate, but hopefully what happens from the democratic debate process is some kind of general consensus comes out or some sense of like, like over decades, right? You know, social security and, and, and Medicare in this country right. were looked at originally as kind of, you know, left wing ideas, but through gradual consensus. Now, even Republicans like social security and Medicare, right? Over decades, you get this kind of consensus that these are good for the general welfare. I, I can't imagine anything like that being recognized today. So I guess... I, I think so. The word that's screaming in my head is complexity. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, the question is, how does politics cope with complexity? And, you know, uh, this word pers perspectivalism, which is, you know, well, that's a big word. Right. And you'd go into it. And yeah. Like reality is so complex. And then, you know, if we're going to try to take all of these complexities on board and think about all the implications of it, suddenly the voice of 
simplicity, you know, becomes really, really attractive, right? And and I think that's you know something that the that the you know really two quite remarkable um, political campaigns of of Donald Trump kind of demonstrated is the allure of simplicity. Because when things get really, really, really complex, I feel like there's you know there's there's kind of two two ways. I'm going to respond. I'm either going to get kind of apathetic, like this is all just a mess and nothing is real or like it is blah, or you kind of get reductivist and, and you look for, you look for um, a shortcut to making sense of it. Right. You want to understand, you know, why your jobs are disappearing. Those immigrants are taking them away. Right. Oh, nice. Simple. Right. You want to understand why there's all this stuff in media that you don't agree with and don't understand is challenging your worldview. It's because they're wrong. And biased. And biased, right? So so these 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 simple messages in a complex world, I think, are so alluring. And it becomes a real question for I remember when when uh, in twenty sixteen when Trump was elected and I'm doing doing like the rounds on on radio um and kind of talking about the consequences of it. And and I remember like I had the I had the last word and, and my last word was, well, you know, uh, that you know, um demagogues do really poorly governing complex multi-ethnic societies. And and that's what the United States is. You know, if you think about it, um, this is a gross generalization and, and it's it's a wrong statement in many ways, but in some ways it's true. The United States is a far more complex society than China is. Yeah. Where, yeah, yeah, where yeah, 90%, yeah, the overwhelming majority of like just the ethnographic population kind of identifies as Han Chinese. Like we're all the same. And then there's a few outsiders. It, it's more complex than that. But, you know, these these advanced liberal democracies like Canada, like the United States, where there's just there, there are there's so much variety of, of life. And there's a system that encourages it all to express itself. It gets really, really complex. And, you know, you, you, you see it too, like in, in democracies that are more, um, you know, uh, ethnically homogeneous. In some ways, it's easier. Uh, absolutely. Right? This it's is, a lot this easier. Is, this is, you know, like, look, Scandinavia, I mean, so many liberals, myself included, look to Scandinavia as kind of a model of what we could do, society, of general welfare kind of politics. But then you look, they're smaller and a lot more homogenous. And there's the social trust factor is so high, is so much. Oh, so high. So yeah, I got to get brief. Because, ex- yeah. Brief example. Because you, it's just, you, yeah. it's a different, you know, I'm going up to Phoenix uh, Monday. Right. And my friends are telling me, well, you know, they're kind of joking. With me, well, you'll have the pleasure of seeing, of going to the supermarket and seeing people with guns strapped to their hips, like the wild west. Like, like mm. you don't go anywhere in the Northeast and see that. Like you get, you know, like, People can bring assault weapons into Applebee's here in in, in Phoenix. Like what? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Open carry. Seriously. Open people? carry of an assault weapon. Yeah. Like uh, it, it's all, it's not fully automatic. Oh, right? okay. But it's semi automatic. <laughs> right? Semi automatic. Right. Assault. You can bring that into a restaurant with you. Like it, I mean, that's how, again, it gets to the diversity of the culture. Like in, in in the Northeast, where I've spent most of my adult life, you couldn't say that that. There's nothing like that. And that's the same country. So maybe, you know, maybe that's a, maybe that's an argument for the, the necessity of some kind of um, the necessity of the presidency in the U S to play the role of representing a notion of unity 
Because if there's no strong, empowered institution that has that role, the the forces of disunity, I mean, you just don't have a chance. There's so many forces to kind of spin things apart. Um, and I love what you said about simplicity, because I I mean, I am a Trump rally connoisseur. I, wa- I, I watch every Trump rally I can because I'm fascinated. And it, it's remarkable that's, that's political. I, it's I, remarkable. I just realized. I haven't been spending enough time with you. I know exactly. Look at me. I'm seeing other people in intellectual projects and watching Trump rally. I didn't realize it was that bad. I apologize. That's (laughs) on me. You've taken me to. No, but I, you know, like I, I should have seen the signs. Exactly. You know, you were, you were, you were just, you're all at the office all the time. You're not paying attention to me. Um, I'm trying to save the world, man. I can't save you. (laughs) You know. But I, when I watch them, I, I, it's masterful, the simplicity you're talking, like the theater and the way he can kind of spin a narrative and convince people who he's doing nothing for and whom he would not socialize with if you had a gun to his head. And he's convincing them he's one of them. And, it, and he goes like to some place in the hour outside of Omaha, right? And he's like, you're the elites, not them. You're better looking. You got better houses. You got but and he's kind of this. It's fascinating this kind of thing he creates. And these people aren't stupid. I mean, they they, they know that he's kind of bullshitting them, and yet they kind of buy into it, right? And, and it and it creates this kind of um, it papers over the complexity, like you're saying. It kind of all right, you know, because I now I have someone at least to blame for my problems. My problems might not be getting better, but at least I've got a story I can indwell. That makes me feel better about them. Hmm. So, you know, I feel like, yeah, you know, what's the lifespan of democracy? <laughs> it's not a question we can answer in one, one, uh, one episode. But I feel like you've put your finger on, you know, one of the big questions. Um, and I think that, you know, there, there's, a, there's a version of this question that, you know, we can all, that we all need to ask ourselves which is, um, I don't know if I can, I can articulate it, but it's, it's like, how engaged am I? I'm not sure if that's the question, but there's, there's some version where kind of the viability of democracy is, is affects each of us um, practically and emotionally. And if we could find the version, if we can find that version of the question, that's the one that kind of the whole world needs to be asking itself. Because, you know, even like armchair theorists, it's like, oh, you know, so why democracy? And there's, this classic line that it's, you know, it's the least bad of all the alternatives. Well, the 21st century, um, you know, led by China is really going to challenge that argument and say, you like you democracies, you need a much stronger argument than that. Yeah, th- yeah this is a, a friend of mine. Ed Watts is an ancient historian. He's at UC San Diego. He's written a book called Mortal Republic, and he does a lot of work on ancient Rome and the, and the deterioration of the republic into autocracy. And I asked him during a podcast, he said, Ed, like, okay, you, you live in ancient Rome. Like, would you rather be in the Republic or, or the Empire? And he says, well, it depends who I am. If I'm a landed Italian family, the Republic, right? And part of the landed Italian families were the, the, the mentality behind the Republic was they had constraints so that you couldn't have an autocrat taking their land and taking all this. And, 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 and the American founders are kind of really inspired by this sort of approach of the early Roman Republic. But Ed says, look, if I'm your average person in Greece or somewhere else in Turkey or the empire, they're building aqueducts and roads. And, mm. and, and, and he's like, for the average person that didn't have the landed gentry interests. And this is the China thing, right? Like, well, it, 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 it's the autocracy for the empire is what produces a lot of infrastructure 
in Rome that actually helps the average citizen, right? And so the, I think your China argument is brilliant uh, because it's going to, well, it's going to, you know, yeah. when you're going to, you know, China, mm-hmm. like how much are they going around the world and building other people's infrastructure, right? right? Like this, and this, the empire I mean, can have that kind of time horizon. Yeah. Yeah. Where if you're, where if you're kind of in a, the developing world, you're in Ethiopia or something, what is, what is the United States doing for you versus what China's coming in and building ports and roads? And, mm. and I think your point there is so well taken. It's going to be, I, I, I think there, there's an alternative argument to be made because I think we, I mean, Americans are so lazy about like this kind of free markets, free people, this kind of kind of wedding of capitalism and and you know liberal democratic values. But China is kind of saying, no, we can give you market capitalism without the liberalism, and it's it's more efficient. And we can give you um, generational agendas. Yeah, right. We can see. The, the challenges we face in the world, like, you know, on climate change, on, on the nature file, you know, China is far more ambitious than the United States at the moment. You know, they've got these astonishing national plans to basically zone the whole country the way you zone a city and say industrial is going to move over there. And this whole swath, you know, 35 percent of the landmass is going to be untouched ecological services, things like forests and rivers and stuff like that going forward and you know it's obvious that we want to move to a kind of post oil energy future because we don't have any oil here in the chinese mainland we're always oil importers so they've got all of these strong incentives to to become independent of um of fossil fuels and and i mean imagine just just imagine um a china that has total energy abundance because it's all renewable I mean, it's it's and, and, and then imagine if you're the United States and you don't have that yet and you're you're tied into the this kind of like passe politics of protecting, you know, physical swaths of land because you need to get the liquid stuff in the ground and like the rest of the world's looking at you and like, wow, your your global strategic thinking is is lost in a previous generation of energy production and you know it's it's just a completely different game i, I don't know i'm kind of getting now, as you, as you, there, but. As you, no but as you're talking and saying this everything you're saying i'm just sitting here thinking this is completely believable like like the picture you're painting uh, it doesn't sound fantastic to me or or imaginary i'm like oh yeah okay i'm, I'm thinking what's the timeline when this will be true like i'm not mm-hmm. thinking oh my gosh wow chris you're really speculating here i'm thinking yeah that sounds right that's that's how we're going to be i mean it is it is it a couple decades how is how long is it before this it looks like this but the picture you're painting to me seems absolutely realistic so i wonder if you know i wonder if 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 we ask you know how do let's just take the u.s example for for now you know how do you how do you bring some uh, longevity into the system, which I think could help with some of these, you know, the complexity problem, um, you know, could help with a lot of the the divisiveness problem. You know, there are all these other issues we've identified, but but the kind of the ability to kind of think and act long term seems to be part of it. And you say, well, you know, again, like the, the presidency could theoretically do that. Maybe maybe it would help if instead of this old electoral college system, it was a direct popular vote. Because then you'd have a branch of your system of government that that is elected differently, that really follows and 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 has to tune into a a different way of slicing the pie, right? You know, to win the Senate, you've got to slice it into states, and to win the House, you've got to kind of slice it into you know districts. Districts, 
But if there was just direct popular vote for the president, then then that that office would wouldn't slice. It would say, you know, what what are the most popular positions to take um, to get the most number of votes? And then you'd have and, and it might be quite clear what those positions are. And so then you've got people who are, are fighting for the office, not so much because they differ that much on what the most on what positions to take. But in, you know, in, in, in some sense of, I don't know who I, I don't know. I don't know what that world, who I am as a person, you know, what uh, what new ideas I would bring and ask you to get on board with, you know, what my vision is for what else we should be doing. But, you know, there's this adage like, you know, you get the government you deserve. And and I wonder how much of this is also the citizenry, right? So I don't know how much of it is the office or the citizenry, right? So I think, you know, a kind of a a democratic republic like the United States kind of requires an educated citizen, a civically educated citizenry, right? To identify the common good and then reward people that, that work towards it and then penalize people that, again, you know, have deleterious agendas, you know, and and erode the common good. And that's where I just think the, again, the electorate is, we get more and more ignorant, we get more and more polarized. and, And I just wonder if, if the, even if you kind of restructured the the electoral mechanism, you're you still have the same voters, and 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 that's I, I mean I think a lot of the kind of changes we need to get a more vibrant democracy, one that would have a longer shelf life, I think are cultural changes that are are hard to make. Like you have to give you have to get people that are more reflective, right, and and less polarized, and more able to see another person's point of view, right, so that so that, that so that they can see okay. Where is there a possibility for consensus? You're you're kind of over here, and I'm over here, but we do have some overlapping values, and we could get together on X, Y, and Z for the common good. And I I just don't know how we. And maybe the maybe the rejection of Trump is 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 a step in the right direction. But again, there's so many people though that are have been reelected that I don't that I think are culturally probably almost as, as problematic, and they're still being rewarded by being reelected. Well, I guess so. You know what's interesting for you. And for your country in the next few years is you get a chance to kind of run an experiment, which is what difference can the president make? Because, you know, Biden is clearly coming in with a I'm going to be a unifier. I'm going to you know sort of restore the soul of America. So if that's his agenda, it'll be a chance to kind of see, OK, so what what difference can the person in that office make to to some of these questions and creating a space for more consensus and, and compromise and, you know, I, I guess my hypothesis would be the answer will be some. Right. Um, and uh, and it won't be as much as the optimists want. And it might not be as little as the pessimists believe. It might be kind of somewhere somewhere in the middle. But I think you're right um, on this kind of fundamental question of like, like you know, can democracy work? Um, and it's interesting to think that kind of like the modern form of democracy, like I, I don't think we're going to see it disappear in our lifetimes. It's been around for a couple thousand years and it would be pretty extraordinary if we were, we were the ones who lived to see the end of it. Um, and there's a, there's a philosophical principle. I don't know if you know it, the Copernican principle that basically says, um, you know, if, if your belief would require that kind of you're extraordinary in time and space, it's probably not the right belief. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> But, uh, you know, so the earth probably isn't the center of the universe. That would make us extraordinary. Um, We're probably not. But, you know, modern democracy with kind of everyone having the vote and mass media and political parties and all the the, kind of the way we do it now, 
And in a social media age, this is just, you know, we've only been doing this form of democracy for a hundred years or so, you know, a couple of lifetimes. So if that form were to really catastrophically fall apart, that actually wouldn't be so extraordinary in a, in a historical lens, right? That was just an experiment that did go that way. Um, and it's hard to kind of know, I guess, where we go from here. I think there's a ton of answers to the questions, like how do we fix things? How do we make things better? Um, I don't know if there's a ton of confidence that it's that it's happening. And and so, you know, not that uh, not that Biden needs any more pressure, but, you know, for your country, I think his presidency is going to be a really, really important one to to evaluate where does the change need to come from? Um, and so his experiment will be, well, let's see what happens when it comes from the top. And um, <coughs> and the not to put any pressure on you, but everything that is left <laughs> is going to have to come from the bottom, <laughs> which is probably going to be a lot. So, you know, yeah, yeah I'm, get I'm your rest. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm in agreement. I mean, I think it will be an interesting time again in that. I mean, it's funny because I was out in the streets a couple nights after it was like the Saturday. It was kind of like, I think it was like a week. Yeah, it was like a week ago when the city just went nuts because people were like just out dancing in the streets because it, it looked like Biden had finally that now Pennsylvania was a lock and you know, the, the electoral college was a lock and people, I've just not seen anything like this. It was bigger than when like the Phillies won, win the world series or the Eagles win the Super Bowl. It was bigger than that. I mean, I had I, I, spontaneous just out dancing in the streets, marching around. I mean, they, the police closed off the streets and, and all this stuff. And it, it did make me think, well, maybe is there a possibility for a ground up dem democratic movement, because this celebration is interesting, right? This is saying something, you know, for 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 people to kind of all mobilize and celebrate in a way that socially that dense was interesting. And I thought maybe, you know, maybe we maybe we're capable of of a longer shelf life than on my cynical days. I think because that was moving and it was very diverse. It was very a young crowd too, and I mean multiracial, gay, straight. You know, LGBT included. I mean, it was really, and I felt myself very moved. I, like I was like, this is really interesting. I I just I found emotionally, I, I was like swept up in this sense of we're, we're we're in this together. Like we've we've kind of we kind of turned a corner and got rid of something that seemed to a lot of people very dangerous in the culture. So maybe there's hope in in that regard, and that people are there's that kind of collective hope, mm. joy, and imagination. Well, that's and I think that's a great chance to kind of bring this uh, meandering conversation full circle. Um, because we were talking uh, at the top about, you know, rational beings and rationalizing beings and Nietzsche. And I think the one thing that, you know, Trump demonstrated very powerfully is that we're more than that. We are emotional beings, you know, the kind of, the kind of magic with which people um, ruled in, in ancient times is still, we can still respond to it. You know, the, the rhythms and the drum beats and the, and the spells that people cast um, and, and he really cast a spell for people. You, you've, you know, you've attended every one of his rallies, right? At least, at least virtually. I watched them. And, and, and so the simplification, I think is an element there. I'm simplifying reality for you, but, but the kind of, uh, the emotional magic is also there. I'm sweeping you up in something that gives you a feeling and it's a good feeling. Um, and so, and so kind of, I, I think that'll be the other piece. And maybe this will be the thing that, you know, people will feel like is missing with Biden at the top is, is 
can you sweep me up? Can you, can you emotionally activate me so that I care about your agenda and I care about the country as, as you help me see it through your eyes, I think will be, you know, maybe the hardest test for a, a president Biden who wants everybody to, to, to see the America that he sees. And it's not enough to describe it to me. You have to make me feel it. Um, so again, we just seem to be adding more pressure on. Well, well, but here's the thing where I want to change the pressure because I think I want to bring it back to base camp, right? Because I think if if democratic society is going to have at least in its like late modern Western form have a longer and healthier shelf life, it's going to be through participating in democratic culture, like democratic cultures, like so base camp, right? It's a great training ground for democracy for democratic skills and practices, learning to dialogue, learning to ask deep questions, mm, uh, learning how, how to share and listen, right? That's, mm. and so you think about, you know, where they are to take seriously your viewpoint, even though I, I don't, yeah, I don't agree with it. Yeah. Right. That's, I mean, it's, it's going to, you know, Weber thinks one of the things that gives birth to the West and it's some of its dynamism is like, well, you have this weird institution like the church, which isn't quite the family and it's not quite the state. And that builds out into guilds and other kind of like mediating institutions in civil society that aren't they're not the state and they're not the family, right? They're these kind of mediating spaces. And I think I think like base camp will be participation in, in communities like this where you have this textured, thick and rich conversational culture. That I think w- w- will help keep the shelf life of our of democratic life going because it's and they're worth their weight in gold because you know a, a community like base camp is worth its weight in gold because at least in the United States, is social media and tribalism and balkanization become the norm. When you have a non-balkanized, non-tribal space where you can actually like take a minute and breathe and talk mm. and listen and, mm. and, and it's joyful. I mean, it's actually, it, it, that's going to be the thing I think that'll, that'll reshape democratic culture because it, it because it's, it's democratic training ground. Well, I'll use that opportunity to give a, a brief plug. Uh, the next global campfire is December 12th. The question we're going to be talking about is what has 2020 revealed to me, uh, which I, I mean, I've got to end the year on that question. Right. And give us all a chance to to just amplify, um, amplify our own sort of annual review of, of what happened in this incredible year. And what does it mean? Uh, you know, with a room full of dozens of people from four or five continents, I think it'll be, I think it'll be great. I think it'll be powerful. The website. Yeah. And if you're, if you're go to basecamp.com. That's the way. Yeah, go. Yeah, go to basecamp.com. And if you're not, if you're listening and you haven't been to Basecamp, please come. I'm just, I mean, I'm just, I'm making it, you know, I implore you, uh, please come because it's, if you like this podcast and, and you find it helpful and useful, it, it's, it's a very similar cultural experience, except it's sort of like it would be this kind of podcast conversation with people over four and five continents all sharing together. It's a really remarkable experience. And I, I just, I, I can't say enough good about it. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer and a participant. So you're a veteran. You were there at I'm the a founding. Veteran. Yeah. I'm at a veteran. the original, at the original gathering. Yeah. And, and you, and you don't know who you'll connect with. I mean, you really, you know, I mean, it's really interesting. I had a wonderful conversation with someone from Australia who reached out to me about our, the podcast and stuff like that, you know, and she's delightful. And I mean, wow, what, what a wonderful connection, you know, I made, you know, just a couple of days after that meeting. And, and I mean, it's really, I, I can't say enough good about it. If you feel like you're in a place where, oh my gosh, I want to have more rich, deep conversations around big questions 
with a wider society. And, and you're like, where do I find that? I mean, the base camp is where it's at. We'll see you there. All right, my friend. This was great. This is Saturday is fun because this is like we did this long meandering podcast, but yeah, we can be a little more relaxed. But it's not like oh, I got another meeting. I got to go. We can right. We don't have meetings together. I took I took uh, like I had five pages of notes for for this podcast. Um, This is great. This is we should do it on Saturday more often because it's kind of um, even though it's like I'm basically I was laying in bed thinking, all right, I got to get up. Here I go. I'm not going to get dressed. I appreciate it. Well, I mean, I'm dressed, but I'm not dressed formally or anything. No, it's. Uh, I appreciate you, even if you're intellectually cheating on me now. It's fine. Exactly. We're, fine. we're gonna go. To, if if there's any couples fine. counselors listening, if you could reach out. To us. <laughs> All right, All my right. friend. Thanks. Thank you. Great. Thanks for listening to the Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.